So the book of Acts, uh, most of you know the author, before we dive into it, just a little bit of background, is this uh, physician by the name of Luke. He was a Gentile physician, and according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, he's referred to as the beloved physician. Uh, Luke's name, it literally means light-giving or giver of light. And uh, the cool thing about Luke is that he lived up to his name for many reasons, but especially because he wrote so much of the Bible. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so in this world, in this land of lies, we need the light. And so thank God for men like Luke who wrote the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's interesting uh, Luke wrote 6% of the Bible, and so that makes him the, the, the heaviest contributor in the New Testament when you look at him writing the book of Acts as well as the Gospel of Luke. And so, you know, when you look at this guy, he was a man who did his homework, extensive research, and therefore what we have before us in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts is an excellent and orderly account. Now, most of you probably have in your Bibles, it has the title there, The Acts of the Apostles, right? And you know, some in looking at that have frowned upon the title because they say, you know, it's not really the Acts of the Apostles, it's the, the Acts of God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's true, and I don't want to in any way take away from the fact that all that's done that's good is done by God. But the thing about it that we have to realize is that God is always working. He is always working. The question is, are we? Are we ready to work? Are we always working? And so, you know, in our own lives, you know, I was thinking about this as coming back from the missions trip uh, from Nepal. You know, when you're on a missions trip or when you're out there in ventures like that, you know, you have an agenda to fill. I mean, every day, you know, you know you're there for a reason. You're there for the kingdom. You're there for the gospel. You're there to encourage the church. You're there to reach the lost. And so every day, except for one day of shopping, every day, right, you know, you have an agenda to fill. That's the way it should always be. Every day it should be a missions trip. There should always be activity on our part. And so in looking at the book of Acts and calling it the Acts of the Apostles, I think it is appropriate for us because God wants us to be active, right? Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we were saved to serve. Make no mistake about it. The only question is, Lord, how do you want me to serve? And you know, the Bible says we are to be rich in good works. In 1 Timothy 6.18, it says we're to be a pattern of good works. In Titus chapter 2, verse 7, we are to be zealous for good works. In Titus 2.14, we are to maintain good works. In Titus 3.14, and as we gather together in the church, we are to stir up love and good works. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 24. But you know, it's up to us, man. I mean, how do you want to live your life? You can get caught up in your own kingdom, in your own desires, or you can get caught up in the calling of God upon your life, right? It's up to us whether or not we will be men and women who not only have the facts, but also have 
the acts, right? Men and women of action in the kingdom of God, which really is the reason Paul, he writes that word of encouragement in Philippians 2 in verse 12 and 13. The Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, we were saved to serve. I mean, we don't you know, necessarily work in order to be saved, but because we're saved, God you know, grasped us for a reason. We have to work out that salvation, and we are to do so with fear and trembling. We are to do so with reverence. We are to do so with an utmost heart of obedience. Why? Because it's God. It's God who's worked in us, and it's God who wants to work through us. And so, you know, Luke, he did a great job in writing it. And we'll, we'll learn more about him. It's amazing, this guy. Again, a physician, probably owned by Theophilus, uh, at one time, but more than likely what happened in Acts chapter 16, when Theophilus got saved, he said, you know what, Paul, you need a doctor more than I do. And he gave Luke to him from that point on and thank God for that, you know, work that God has done through him. He's an example. So, you know, the author and the title and what's the theme of the book of Acts? Well, it's just building the church, right? How did it go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth? You know, how did Christianity spread from Jesus to the 12 and then eventually to the billions around the world today? You know, in looking at Acts, it spans about 30 years, but we get to see the building blocks of how it spread, and we get to see the fundamentals of what God did in the church so that it would spread. And it's good for us to go back to this you know, the model for the church is here in the book of Acts. We don't have to look to modern day churches. No, we look to the Bible. And I think a lot of times what we have to do is get back to the basics. And so something real fascinating about the book of Acts is that it has no uh, typical conclusion or doxology. You know, usually at the end of uh, the letters of the Bible, most of the books you would have like a formal finality to it, but this one is open-ended. Pastor Chuck called it an open-ended book. It's just Paul there in Rome in the rented house, two years, preaching and teaching. It says no one forbidding him. It was just like Luke didn't write an ending to it. And of course, we know the reason is the book of Acts continues, right? We are still, in one sense, writing the book of Acts. And so it's kind of cool knowing that in our heart. And so let's begin reading in Acts 1, in verse 1. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Here we see in verse 1 that Luke addressed the book to a man named Theophilus. And his name means a lover of God or friend of God. And again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this may have been his former owner in those days, it's interesting, rich people would find a physician that who had graduated from school 
and they would purchase them for their households. And so more than likely, he was set free by Theophilus to serve the Lord. And so if you read Luke 1, 1 through 4, the gospel, you'll see similar words and opening statements, how that book was also written to Theophilus, that one man. It says in Luke 1, it says, It seemed good to me, also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And so what we're, what we're reading before us in the book of Acts and the gospel is a man who is an excellent writer, an educated man, putting together an orderly account, and he writes it to uh, Theophilus, who may have funded uh, Luke's ministry. And you know, just as a quick side note, you guys, there's a great lesson there for us in Luke's faithfulness to God by being faithful to one man. I mean, here's Luke doing all this research. He's interviewing people. He's talking to Peter. He's talking to Mary. I mean, he's talking to all these different people. You know, he's probably online, right? Checking everything out, Google searches and all that, you know? And he's doing his homework, though, to write this account to one man, to write it to Theophilus. And you know what? There is a lesson there in Luke's faithfulness to God by being faithful to the few. You know, I, I was reminded as I was studying this out of that man by the name of Edward Kimball. You probably never heard of him, but he was a youth worker in the church. And, uh, you know, just a, a typical guy, you wouldn't really think a whole lot would happen through his life, that he would impact eternity. But it was Edward Kimball who led D.L. Moody to Jesus Christ. You know, it was there, and he was one of the youth guys, and he saw this youth guy coming into his classes, and he said, you know what, he doesn't really know the Lord. You know, as a youth pastor, you know, you got people coming in, and you might notice, hey, that one, they come, they show up, they don't have a Bible, they don't know the Lord. So what God laid on his heart was to go to where this young man worked. He worked at a, a shoe store, and Edward Kimball went out of his way to go share the gospel with D.L. Moody. And that day, D.L. Moody was saved. You know, it started then a chain reaction. This was back in 1855. I I think we have a, a, a graphic to kind of give you some of the guys that got it affected by this. Um, we have uh, Edward Kimball then leading D.L. Moody to Christ. And he went on to become one of the greatest evangelists of all time. He would preach to 10 to 20,000 people at a time. They, they say that he reached 100 million people in his evangelistic crusades. And so not only did a grip of them get saved, but he also influenced a pastor by the name of F.B. Meyer. Meyer went on to become a great pastor and writer. As a matter of fact, he's one of my favorites today, who then impacted another by the name of Wilbur Chapman. And you can look up all these guys. These guys are all famous. Edward Kimball isn't, but the other guys are. And Chapman ministered to a former professional baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday, whose ministry and evangelism thrived greatly, and then Sunday impacted a man by the name of Mordecai Ham, another well-known evangelist, revivalist. And one night, Mordecai Ham had a revival in North Carolina 
where a young uh, man by the name of Billy Graham was saved. And you guys probably heard of Billy Graham? Most of you have, right? We have a picture of him. Look at how handsome he is, huh? <laughs> you know, there's him. And there's another picture we have here of him just preaching uh, to the people. Look at the masses of him sharing the gospel. They say that Billy Graham has preached to more people and live audiences than anyone else in human history. Nearly 215 million people have heard him in over 185 countries throughout the world, and more have been reached through television, video, film, and webcasts. And so, you know, I even, I don't know if you guys knew this, Warren Wiersbe got saved through Billy Graham, another one of my favorite Bible teachers. And all that to say what? what all, how did all this chain reaction begin? In many ways, you can trace it back to one man being faithful to one man. When Edward Kimball had it on his heart to go to that shoe store and share the gospel with a young guy by the name of D.L. Moody. And, and I just want to encourage you. You may look at whatever your ministry is and you may think it's not a lot. All I, can, all I want to say to you is be faithful to the few because God has a way of missions math that's totally different than what we might think. Just be faithful where he's placed you. Don't underestimate your faithfulness. You know, Theophilus was blessed by Luke, and now look at billions and billions of lives have been touched through the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. You know, Theophilus is a lover of God. Any of you guys lovers of God? Amen. That's, this is to us, huh? <laughs> Notice again what we read there in verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. You know, the book of Acts, it actually continues. It's part two of the words and works of Jesus Christ, you know. And usually you don't see like a, a part two as good as part one, but this is, man, these are both really good. Toy Story is an exception, but you know, yeah. <laughs> You know, the Gospel of Luke, awesome, right? The book of Acts. This is, this is just a continuance of what Jesus is teaching and how Jesus is touching. And I think it's important for us as a church to know that, you know, that uh, we're going to see later, you know, what happens, but we need to see that that's what's going on here. As lives are being changed, as lives are being spoken to, as lives are being healed, as hearts and marriages are being mended, it's the work of Jesus. This is the work of Jesus. That was the beginning. The church then continues on what Jesus began. You know, it's the great commission. He's with us, speaking to us, speaking through us, working in and for us. Jesus had been working, it says, until the day he was taken up. And we'll read that in verses 9 through 11 regarding Jesus' ascension. But during the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, we read there in verse 2 that he gave commandments to the apostles he had chosen and he presented himself alive uh, after suffering and dying with many infallible proofs. And so... You know, uh, one of the things when you're out there sharing with people, it was interesting when we were in Nepal, one of the guys that we shared with, you know, we asked him, you know, do you know what will happen to you when you die? 
you know, and uh, he said, well, the only way you could know is you'd have to die and come back. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus did. He conquered that death, right? And so for us, understanding that's, the, that's how we know his words to be true, that's how he know his claims about himself to be true is because he died and he rose again, right? He gutted the grave, he defeated death, conquered the coffin, and so... Luke here says infallible proofs. I mean, it's not just, you know, a, on a whim. I mean, we're talking they saw him, they touched him, they hugged him, they held him, they ate with him. Infallible proofs that he did indeed rise from the dead. And so while he was there 40 days, he was uh, speaking a lot about the kingdom of God. And so Luke prefaces his book, and then he begins his narrative in verse 4. It says, and, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, the book of Acts is all about the spread of the gospel of the good news of God's life, God's love, and how even though there's sin, there is salvation through Christ, right? But now we look at this and we wonder, well, how did this 12 and then the 120 and the 500, how were they going to possibly reach the ends of the earth? You know, and you might ask that, you know, and it could be in different ways. I mean, I don't know how you feel. I don't know what's in your heart. But don't you want to see uh, our country come back to Christ? Don't you want to see the world won for the Lord? You know, there might even be someone in your life who is just so hard, you know, to the Lord. Uh, you know, they're a, 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 an atheist or, you know, they're a heroin addict or, you know, they might think that they're just so dead in their sins. A part of you almost thinks that there's no hope for them. But, but see, there is hope for them. There is hope for our nation. There is hope for the world because it's not our power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the only way this is ever going to get off the ground. That's the only way it's ever going to reach someone's heart. You know, it's got to be the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you guys care about people. I hope that you do. Some people, it's funny, they, they, just, they don't care about anybody but themselves. It's such a selfish place. It's a, a place of misery living on the doorsteps of hell when you don't care about anybody but yourself. But when you start caring about your family and your friends and your coworkers and your, you know, the students that you see, or you just start, eventually you begin to have compassion. You see the people, they're weary and scattered as sheep, having no shepherd, and eventually you just have a heart like God. You have a heart for everybody. You want everybody to get saved. But then how can we do this? Well, it's got to be the Lord, right? 
I mean, the only way possible is by the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord commanded them. He said, don't go anywhere until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice again there in verse 4, they're assembled together. He commanded them, listen, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit many days from now. And what did they do? They then asked him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? You know, And they're all caught up in eschatology. And, um, and it's, it's okay in one sense. You know, we want that kingdom to come. It is biblical. We want the Lord to return. And the Bible says he is going to return on the Mount of Olives. And he's going to walk into Jerusalem from the east. And that will happen. But until then... The Lord said, don't, don't get caught up in times and seasons. Right now, you have a task. People need to be saved. That's what life is all about. And so you need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to go back to Jerusalem and wait there. And don't go anywhere until you receive that power. And John the Baptist had said this from the beginning, in Matthew 3.11, he said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So that was from the very beginning. And then Luke 24.49, the Lord had said the same thing. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And that's what we need. You know, whatever it might be, you know, to be the husband, to be the wife, to be the parent, to be the worker, the friend, the servant, the minister, the missionary, the pastor. Nothing can be done without the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you could do all the counseling in the world. You can memorize the whole Bible. But if you don't have the power and the person of the Holy Spirit, it's in vain. It's in vain. And so the Lord said, this is what you need. You need power. Isn't that kind of cool? I mean, just to think that knuckleheads like us can have you know, God's power. I mean, how many of you guys are excited about that? You know, I mean, it's not us. We know what we can do on our own strength. I fail miserably when I walk in my own strength. Uh, that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I've learned that the hard way too many times. But I also know what I can do when I allow the Lord just to have his way in me. And that's what we need. You know, we need power. We need power. We can't defeat the devil, uh, the demons. We can't defeat our enemies. We can't. We need his power in order to do that. You know, most of you know the Greek word translated power is that word uh, dunamis, right? And uh, it's where we derive our word uh, dynamite from. And there's an interesting parallel. You know, dynamite uh, was invented by Alfred Nobel in 1860. Uh, he was on a quest to discover safe and stable power, uh, a safe explosive wherein they could have a, a new method of blasting rocks out of the way because his dad was actually a, a builder of bridges. His father, uh, Emmanuel Nobel, was famous for that. And we have a picture of him. We have a a picture of dynamite here. You can kind of see, even this kind of funny, you guys know the Nobel Peace Prize is named after him. Um, and so he was a pacifist and his invention for dynamite was not 
malicious. It wasn't for uh, in, you know, evil intentions. He wanted to blow up these rocks so that they could build bridges, right? And so um, when I was looking at that, I thought it's kind of interesting. The parallel in many ways is really what God wants to do. You know, that's kind of what the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit is. It's, it's good power. It's safe power. It's stable power. It's not weird power, right? It's the power of God that blasts away the hard hearts of men with the truth of God's love. And then bridges are built to bring people to God. That's the way people are going to get saved. I mean, some people, they complain about you know, their neighbors will just let the Holy Spirit loose on you and be a witness to them. That's what the Lord says right there. He doesn't say, you're going to receive power and then you're going to witness. No, he says, you're going to receive power and you're going to be a witness. People are going to look at you and they're going to go, wow, that person's different. That person's got love. That person cares. That person reminds me of Jesus. What is it? And then you get to share with them. You know, it might not seem like much. Like, Manny, that's kind of like simple. You know, well, dynamite is small, you know, but it's powerful. And we're small. But we can be powerful, huh, when God gets a hold of our hearts. I remember one time... Shelley met David Hawking. I don't know if any of you guys know who David Hawking is. He's this big preacher guy, Jewish guy, strong voice. Everything about him is, is he's a big dude, right? And, uh, and he saw my wife Shelley, and you know Shelley, she's little, right? And so he, she, she saw him. She said, wow, look at you. You're tall. And then he said, you're small. <laughs> but then he said, you know, it's okay, though, because Shelley's a little feisty. And he said, dynamite comes in small packages. And it's true. I mean, God, if we, imagine if you let God just have your life. There was nothing that God couldn't do. I mean, how can we possibly pull this monumental task of verse 8? Look again, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I mean, how could that possibly happen before the internet, before airplanes, trains, automobiles? How could that possibly happen? That's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what happens. When we see the book of Acts, we're going to see the church in Jerusalem in chapters 2 through 7, then spreading to Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 12, and then to the ends of the earth in chapters 13 through 28. And so, you know, we need to take the book of Acts to heart, you know, how they knew their purpose and how they acquired God's power. They fought and got caught up in the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of men, even though there was a temptation to. Jesus said, no, you're going to receive power and you're going to receive purpose. Please, I beg of you, don't forget your purpose. I mean, it's cool to have fun, but it's not all about fun. It's cool to be entertained, but it's not all about entertainment. It's about the Lord. And we have to remember that. And so we read in verse 9, Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so the Lord, you know, they're there, um, Mount of Olives, and he's just, he just, you know, starts ascending into heaven. And, uh, and they're, so they're watching him go up, and the clouds are not, you know, the, the physical clouds. We're talking about some amazing clouds, the Shekinah glory of God. And he rises up, and it's a different dimension. Heaven's not this dimension. It's somehow, somewhere along the way, he, he disappears. And so they're just looking up. You know, they, they can't, you know how sometimes you see somebody off, and you look them, and they're, they leave, and they just can't stop looking up, right? You know, who knows how long they would have stood there. And so God sends, it says right here, uh, uh, men, you know, two men, and uh, in white apparel, more than likely angels, but we're not 100% sure. I read one commentary, thought it might have been a couple of guys from the Old Testament. But usually when there are men from the Old Testament, they would be identified. I would probably venture to say that, that they were angels. But anyways, they, they just gave him a message. They said, just as he came the first time, you guys, you, he's coming again. Literally, actually, visibly. Not invisibly, like some will say, like the, the JWs or someone, oh, he came, he, he returned, you know, but he's just invisible. No, I mean, when Jesus comes again, he's going to come the same way he left. Actually, literally, visibly, he will return. And uh, he's going to come back. It's interesting, in the same place he left, the Mount of Olives, he's going to step there, it's going to split. When you guys go with us to Jerusalem or when you go with us to Israel, you're going to see the east gate where he will enter in. And it's going to be so amazing. The only difference is it's going to be similar, but when the Lord comes in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it says, every eye will see him when he returns. And Jude 14 reveals the fact that we, his people, will be with him when he comes. And so, you know, are you guys excited about that? I mean, you look at the world that we live in. I mean, how close are we from a nuclear war, perhaps? I mean, that can happen. I mean, this, it, does, it doesn't seem to be getting better. If you think it's getting better, I think you're weird, you know? <laughs> I mean, you look at the world and, the, and, the, and the, just the terrorism, the, the, the murder, I mean, the things that are going on, man is trying his best, but things are getting worse, and I think we need help. I think we need him. I think we need the Lord to come. But before the Lord comes, visibly, actually, and what we see is that he's going to rapture the church first. So first is the rapture of the church, and that can happen any day now, right? The Bible says in the blink of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, one-eleventh of a second, it'll happen. He's going to rapture the church just like he did Enoch. He's going to take us out. Then there's going to be seven-year tribulation. First three and a half years is going to be relatively peaceful. But what that does is it allows one man, then the world is looking for a leader today. One man will rule the world eventually, three and a half years into it. He's revealed for his true colors. He's the Antichrist. And all hell breaks loose on earth. And so after the seven years, then Jesus comes literally to reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And so when you look at what's going on in the world today, you see all the signs of his second coming. 
Just as Jesus told both friends and foes he would be coming back on the clouds of heaven with great power in Matthew 26, 64, Luke 21, 27, uh, so we see he is repeated this doctrine here. And second coming of Christ is the most repeated doctrine in the Bible. And I think the reason it is is because not only do we need to know the certainty of it, but we need to receive the comfort of it. Because when I look around this world and I think, Lord, where's our help? We know that he is indeed coming. And so we read in verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem after Jesus had ascended from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. That's about a half a mile. And you'll be able to see Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so... If you want to write a few things down, you know, you can. I would say in verse 2, we see the previous power. That when the Lord, you know, taught his disciples, it says in verse 2, he did it through the Holy Spirit. So the previous power. In, in verse 4, we have the promise of power. And God says, hey, this is a promise I have for you. You want it? You can receive it. The power of God. In verse 8, we have the purpose of power. It's not to dazzle people with the way that I can speak in tongues or some other gift. No, it's to win the loss to Christ. So we have the previous power, the promise of power, the purpose of power, but now we have the prayer for power. You know, and I just know, you guys, you guys kind of got to know this, that if you don't pray, I mean, chances are you're not going to really receive that power. You know, if you don't really want that power, you know, when we were in Nepal, it was kind of cool, the, the, the password for their Wi-Fi, and I don't, you guys won't tell anybody, right? Is <laughs> Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longeth after thee, O God, so thirsty for him in this dry land where there is no water that would satisfy. That's where we have to be. And we're going to see that they ended up praying for 10 straight days in one accord. You know, and it's just like, man, coming to that place where you realize you need the Lord. I'm not 100% sure what the content of all their prayers were entirely, but undoubtedly it was a large part of their heart that they knew that they needed to obtain the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see, Lord willing, next week in chapter 2 that he does indeed come. And you know, that was the model of the Lord and that was the message of the Lord. How is your prayer life? I mean, how is, not to, you know, beat you up, but to lift you up, man, and make sure that we're praying the way that we should. You know, in, in Luke 3, 21 and 22, it says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. 
You know, I, I don't know if you want that power. Hopefully you do. I would venture to say all of you do. If you don't want God's power, you're weird, okay? I'll just, I just think you're weird. I mean, I would love, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I have coffee. I want power. I want the Lord's power. I want as much power as I can get, you know? And so, I mean, do you want that? Okay, then, well, tell me how to get it. Well, I think uh, two things. You got to make sure you don't doubt and you don't disobey. Do your best not to disobey. Do your best not to doubt. If you don't doubt, you're going to pray. Lord, you promised. You said it was mine. I'm praying like Luke 11 says. Keep on seeking, asking, and knocking. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so I'm not doubting. I'm believing. I'm praying. So I'm going to be receiving. But also... You know, you're not living a life of sin, open-ended, you know, uh, it doesn't matter, uh, you know. No, I mean, you're, you're striving for holiness. When the Father baptized His Son with the Holy Spirit, He said, in you, I love you, Son, I love you, and I'm pleased with you. In you, I am well pleased. And I think there's something to that, because when we doubt this promise, we quench the Spirit, and when we disobey, we grieve the Spirit. So do your best not to doubt. Do your best not to disobey so that you can have, we can have the promise of the power of the person, the Holy Spirit in our life. You know, what we see is that the 11 apostles and, and that are mentioned here, the ladies and Mary is mentioned here, Jesus' mother. It's uh, a la the last time she's mentioned in the Bible. And here we see, you know, Mary's there. They're not praying to her. They're not praying through her. I mean, it's like I said, the last time she's mentioned. God will work, you know, in everyone's life. But what we see right here is God, you know, elevates those that he has chosen you know, they're, they're praying, it says, with one accord. The word is found 12 times in the Bible, 10 times in the book of Acts. One accord. And so that emphasizes what? Their unity, right? It helps us understand the uniqueness of the Christian community. And I think that that's another thing, that for us as a church, you know, to be united, a chord, we think of maybe a guitar chord, right? Different notes, but when put together, a beautiful sound. That's the way it is with us. There's a unity through diversity, but we're united. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to sound weird or anything, but what if, what if? You, you know, you got, you got 12 people or whatever. You got a group of friends, and you just said, like, for the next 10 days... We're going to fast, we're going to pray for not a repetition of Pentecost, but an appropriation of Pentecost. You know, and I don't want to sound weird. Don't say Manny's giving a formula, okay? I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, you know, there, there's got to be something. We don't just go back to the same life after reading something like this. Lord, show me how you want me to pray, and maybe there's people I can pray with. Maybe, if, what if all of us here just said, you know what, let's do this. You know, maybe we won't get together in the upper room or something, but we'll still be together. There's an interesting passage in Psalm 133. It's a, it's a song of a sense. It's a, it's a psalm of David, and it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. 
It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. And that, that psalm right there, it, it just says how blessed it is when the, the men, they dwell together in unity. And, and when they're there, there's this anointing of the Holy Spirit so that the oil comes down and you can just, can you guys see the oil just dripping down his beard all the way down the edge of his garments? And the dew, what is the dew? That is the blessings from God that come down upon us. I think God is moving in this church. But I think he wants to move more. I think God wants all of us here to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is why we're studying the book of Acts. God is going to do something great. You know, I've taught the book of Acts before, and, you know, I, I, I went a lot more in depth, and, you know, maybe you did a few verses at a time, but the Lord just, he laid it on my heart. He said, no, this time when you teach it, I want you to teach it a little bit, you know, faster, because I don't want them to get lost in it. I want them to get this big picture, this bird's eye view of what God does through people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who know their purpose and receive my power. And so the Lord, in verse 4, notice again, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And so what did he command them? He said, wait. Is that hard to do? For a lot of you here, huh? You're like, man, that microwave is taking so long. <laughs> I think Peter was that way too. Look at verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names was about 120. And said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. And so Peter gives a little bit of the background regarding Judas. Uh, what happened was he returned the money. With that money, they purchased this field. Judas then went out and hung himself. But as he hung himself, either the rope broke or the branch broke, and he fell. And as you guys go to Israel with us, and I'm, can you tell I'm encouraging you to go? <laughs> You're going to see it's all rocks, rocks everywhere. And so when he fell, apparently, he opened himself up. And so... You know, Peter's saying, this guy needs to be replaced. And, and the last time I read, the Lord said, wait. But Peter said, no, I got work to do, right? And we got to be careful with that. You know, I think that a lot of times God is telling us to wait on him, and we try to go ahead. Sometimes we lag behind. We're dragging our feet. And God says, come on, let's go. The key is to stay in step with the Spirit. That's the key. But anyways, here Peter tells the story and he gives some biblical background in verse 20 that Judas does need to be replaced. And it's true because it says in the book of Psalms, 
Let his dwelling place be desolate and no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, to be honest with you, I'm going through this section rather quickly because I don't want to be dogmatic about it. I'm not 100% sure. There are some teachers out there who think this was legit. Personally, I just think there is no way, Jose. There is no way that this was real. There's no need to be dogmatic. But you know what? Um, Pastor Chuck Smith, uh, Damian Kyle, some of my most respected teachers would say that it was not Matthias that was chosen by God. Chosen by man, yeah. Even Luke acknowledged him, and he, you know, from time to time he would say, well, this is the 12. But you know, there's a big difference between, cho- between being chosen by men and be- between being chosen by God. Paul was the one who was chosen by God. You know, if you look back at verse 2, notice what it says, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's the key. When you look at all the 12, they were all chosen intimately, personally, by Jesus. Matthias isn't. But in Acts chapter 9, who appears to Saul? Jesus. And Jesus chooses him. You see, the apostles with a capital A, the 12 that we're going to acknowledge in heaven one day, those are the ones that are chosen by Jesus. And we're going to see that in chapter 9. Saul gets saved. Uh, His name then becomes Paul as he begins his ministry. And out of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts, we're going to see that pretty much 16 chapters are all about God working through him, not Matthias. This is the last time we read of Matthias. Not only that, out of the 27 books in the New Testament, Paul wrote at least 13 of them. You know, when they read the book of Galatians, he even says that, I'm an apostle, not chosen by man, but by Jesus. I think the lesson is Peter should have waited like Jesus told him to. Peter should have really prayed rather than casting lots. And Peter shouldn't have narrowed it down to these two, right? You know, God often thinks outside the boxes that we put him in. And I'll share this with you guys, right? Don't, you guys aren't going to tell anybody? If you, if, you can't, if you can't keep a secret, then just cover your ears right now, okay? You know, we're going to go look at a building on Tuesday, you know? And so let's see what the Lord does. And so... Um, you know, I like this location. I love this building, and this one is kind of cool, too. And so a part of me is thinking, okay, Lord, which of these two do you want? Who knows? The Lord might have something else huh, that he wants to do. So we never, ever limit the Lord. 
Pastor Chuck said this. I see, he said, I think that they made a mistake that we often make, and that is giving God limited options. Lord, you want me to do this or that? Well, maybe he had something entirely different that you haven't even thought of. But we limit God by the options we offer him. It would appear that the Lord had another choice for an apostle. That was Paul, who came along later. Of course, as we get into the book of Acts, he said, we are going to find an awful lot about Paul and his ministry, but we know nothing about Matthias. This is the first and last time you ever hear anything about him. And so, again, I agree with Pastor Chuck that Matthias was chosen by men, not Paul. And again, it's a perfect illustration for us in that we need to be led by the Spirit, right? Not lots, not us. If Jesus says wait, you wait for the power and person of the Holy Spirit, right? And so in closing, in looking at this, I don't know, are you guys excited about the book of Acts? I'm so excited about this book. I do pray that as we learn today that we would have a heart to work and win people to Christ because that's what the Lord wants, right? But in order to do that effectively, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to pray in unity and just think, you guys, if we did, not focusing on our differences, not focusing on the way that we fall short or that person falls short, but just focusing on the promise of God. Imagine what God will do. And so, apostles here, small a, yeah, I believe so. Disciples, yeah. Christians, I think most of you are saved, right? Some of you I'm still wondering. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, that's what it's all about. So I pray that today you would trust him and that he truly would be the Lord and Savior.